The Roman Road to Salvation, Part 2, will be in Romans chapter number 1. And if anyone needs a copy of the, the worksheet that I gave out, I have raise your hand and it'll be in your hand here in a moment. All you have to do is raise your hand and you will have a copy here in a moment. We'd like to say that for the benefit of this congregation, there is no, no place in the Bible that better describes the condition of the country that you now live in. There is no better place in the Bible that discusses where America is the, today. Today is the 12th day of November, 2022. And I promise you, God is my witness. The book of Romans, chapter number one, is the greatest, most ex uh, in-depth exposure of where this country is right here today than any other place in the Bible. Hands down. Why is that? Because when St. Paul wrote to the, uh, to the Roman congregation, when he wrote this epistle, that generation, that culture in ancient Rome was very close to approximating the, the type of culture we live in in America today. The Roman culture in the first century, middle of that century, was moving toward a complete, total spiritual, moral breakdown. They, had, they didn't have open borders, but they were ingesting large numbers of people. They faced every problem that we face. Now, the distinguishing factor that was going on in ancient Rome at that time was that the Roman population were completely focused on the very destructive elements that we see in America today. Every criteria that you want to write down that characterizes America in the 21st century is pretty much where the Roman world was in the first century. So I promise you today, beloved, if St. Paul was writing an epistle to the church of Israel, he would pretty much start out like he started the epistle in the, in the book of Romans. His, his first step, the first goal that St. Paul had was to say, folks, here is where we are. This is the culture we live in. This is the reality of where we are. And I want to present you a pathway through this terrible maze of the, 20, of the first century world so that you can find that road map that will guide you to a place of safety. Now, the place of safety, of course, is eternal life. But here's what we all need to know today, folks. We are pilgrims and strangers in the land that we live in. We live in the kingdom of men, but our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. When we are born into this world, we are born into the kingdom of men. When we become a Christian, we become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that will one day fill this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> so I want to let you know today, beloved, that now we've just come out of a national election. And from my part, and I can't speak for anyone else here in the congregation and would not want to because I respect everyone's opinion. But we are right on the path of ancient Rome. We are not only on the path, but we are maybe exceeding the wickedness of ancient Rome. 
And I say that because if you can, if you can imagine how a country that has adopted the idea of the murder of its children, infanticide. And if you, can, if you can understand a country that would not only accept the idea of abortion as being a reasonable, a reasonable part of the culture, that is what millions of people decided to vote for in this election. They wanted a, a national law that would bring in uh, a, a na nationwide path to abortion. And a lot of them said so on the exit polls, that they made the choice to vote for the party that would endorse the murder of their children. Now, they didn't use the word murder because they don't believe that a child is a child. That same generation of people that embraced abortion opened their arms and believe in sodomy and every form of homosexual behavior that you can name. That same uh, group of people believe in gender dysphoria, that a child doesn't know whether they're male or female. They got to decide that later. They also believe in race mixing, same-sex marriage. But beyond that, they believe in wide open borders. It doesn't matter to them that people from a hundred different countries of the world are my, uh, immigrating now into this country. It, it doesn't matter to them because they only see a, a global world of the same kind of people. So race mixing means nothing to them. In fact, they would like to encourage it because it would bring about the brown hue. The color brown would become more apparent more quickly if we just opened wide our borders and had total interracial mixing and marriage. It doesn't bother them that inflation is robbing them blind because people in America, and we have to understand this, the poorest, the poorest Americans today own a cell phone. The poorest Americans in America today have a television set or more than one. The poorest Americans in this country today have at least the equivalent or more than the upper middle classes in many countries of the world. This is a very wealthy country and people do not know it. The American people do not know how blessed they have been. Now it may be very well, church, that God is going to take away some of these blessings. I don't know where we're moving. When they, when they talk about electric cars, I think that's absolutely, utterly foolish. But you had at least half of the country or more that endorsed electric cars in this election. Because the, the uh, stammering leader, afflicted with dementia, told them, we're going to take away all the fossil fuels. We're going to close down your coal mines said this in Pennsylvania, we're going to take away all your fossil fuels. And the people in Pennsylvania turned around and they voted not only for their president that they apparently love, but they, they voted for their, uh, the, the wannabe governor of the state. I'm sorry, I had that wrong. The, the Senate, the guy running for the U.S. Senate, Fetterman, who during the entire election process never was able to make one coherent sentence. Not one coherent sentence, and yet he is now the U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. So we live in a time, church, that is depicted by St. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter number 1. 
Paul starts his epistle by describing to the people that he's trying to gather together and form a church with, he's saying, look, folks, this is where we are, but this is where we need to be. Now, you and I, church, here today, we have a monumental choice ahead of us. Everyone in this building has a choice to make. And that choice is to know that above all the people of America, we need to carve out a pathway that will immunize us from the wickedness that is now underway in this land. And we have to decide how we're going to preserve our children, how we're going to protect our families, how we're going to, how we're going to carve a pathway through the maze of this growing, proliferating, unbelievable, undefinable wickedness of the 21st century. Amen. Now, I, some of you may think, well, he's overstating the case. Actually, I'm understating the case. I'm understating the danger that we live in in America today because we're very close to the precipice, I think, of divine judgment. I would not be surprised to see catastrophic judgment handed down upon any part or all of America. I talked to a guy from Nebraska who told me that they have not had rain around the Platte River in centralized Nebraska <clears throat> for so long that they're afraid the country is going to literally burn up because if somebody starts a fire, they have not had rains for so long. They didn't raise any crops. They didn't raise any hay. They, people have sold their cattle. That's just north of here in Nebraska. Now, folks, listen. My humble belief is that we will be blessed as a people, that God will send rain upon us, that God will bless us right in the middle of a terrible time of judgment if we will make our hearts right with Him. That means that you and I and everybody in this congregation, everybody that's numbered in this body today has to have a heart that's right with God. We have to make things right with God. And that begins in our own families. We have to learn to treat each other with godliness and respect and honor and to know that every one of us is a part of a body that's trying to survive in a very wicked time of history. And the misbehavior of one can cause all of us to suffer to some degree because God judges us in many ways as a body. And the, and the behavior of a whole body is a reflection of how we're viewed by our Father in heaven. And I'm not standing here today to say that we're trying to please anybody in Vernon County. Our goal is to please the God of Abraham. To please the God of our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who made a covenant with our people in days gone by. So the, th the thought I had, folks, is this. Here we are in a country with soaring violent crime of every description. We have flash mobs that run into a, a, a big department store or any kind of a, a, a place where things are sold, and they will gather and rob a place today in America with no absolute fear of being apprehended and suffer any consequences. We are a country today, people, that are abusing our children in ways that make the heathen of former generations look mild. No generation that I know of, I stand corrected. If, I, if I'm wrong, you, you, I want to be corrected. You cannot find a generation in history that have been willing to perform hysterectomies on eight-year-old girls. You will not find a generation in history 
that, are, that practice chemical castration of their little boys at six, seven, and eight. It's going on in America all over the country. In the East Coast, the West Coast, the blue states are abusing their children in terrible ways. God in heaven is, stand, is sitting on that throne. And I'm telling you, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to make himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is right with him. That's why I am saying today, people, when you go home today and you gather around your Sabbath dinner table and you, you look at each other and you talk at each other, you talk with each other and you communicate with each other, people, we live in a time when we need to reach out and encourage our family members. We need to lift them up. We need to embrace them. We need to help them. We need to each one teach one, each one help one. And if you have extended family members, it is a day and time to reach out to those folks. Even if you have to send them an anonymous letter, send them, send them some kind of a message. We've got to reach our people. And, you know, I'm, I'm convinced, folks, and again, I'm not trying to ask anyone to share my opinions. You don't have to share my opinions. You probably have better ones than I do. But I believe, and this election confirmed it for me, that we may never, ever, ever see a white Christian leader elected to the office of the president ever again in our lifetime. Moreover, I'm convinced that the election theft and fraud is so cemented now into our elections that they are no longer free, no longer honest, no longer transparent. They are still counting votes in Arizona and Nevada. And they have been counting them for days. How is it that a populist state like Florida can count all the votes in one day and let you know who won every public office in the state before the day, before the day turns dark. And yet these other states can't do it. Do you know why it is? Because during the COVID shutdown, 20 and 21, the democratic electioneering the Democratic electors in the state legislatures of the blue states cemented into place mail-in votes. It's now baked into their election cake. And they will always control elections. All they have to do is make more ballots. They can just make ballots till they get enough. And you're watching it on full display in this country today. So folks, listen. You may not, none of us may understand the full, full value of what it means to have a congregation that we can share the idea of what we believe that we, we, we do not accept interracial mixing. We cannot, we dare not mix the blood, allow the blood of our children to be diluted and mixed with the other races. We're not condemning any race. We're not passing condemnation upon any race of people, but we want to preserve our people the way God created them. We want to stay white, no matter what the rest of America may want. And I know there's a lot of other people that share those sentiments across the land. There's a whole world of people that say, enough is enough is enough. Now back to the book of Romans. We left off last week in chapter 1, verse 27. And we're going to begin right there, right now. I'm in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. So here we go. If you have your Bible open, 
we're coming down. Now, <clears throat> this is the chapter that where St. Paul tells the people there in that church, this is where we are. From there on, he tells them, this is where we need to go. So let's look at verse 27. I'm in Romans 1 and verse 27. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Now that's a very understandable verse. We'll not camp out here and build a tent or a cathedral. We, we know that St. Paul is giving them the pathology of the wickedness that was taking that great culture down to its death and destruction. So let's go to verse uh, number 28. I'm on point nine of our outline, and uh, we'll look at verse 28, Romans chapter 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, read the next phrase with me. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, I think everybody knows what the word reprobate means. If you were to be called a reprobate in the first century, there's hardly any term that would be more disgraceful than to be called a reprobate. St. Paul is saying that that generation of people were descending into reprobation. That means that their minds no longer had any relevance to God or the authority of Scripture. They no longer believed in absolute truth. They believed in whatever the human mind could conceive of that might be whatever they wanted to do. So let's, we know that It's this, this, it's this simple, church. See if, you, see if you agree with me. God and Scripture defines absolute truth. The Word of God, God is the author of the Word. God's Word if, is, is what we, we know defines absolute truth. If if we say, as they do in America today in so many circles, that we don't know what truth is, we can't know truth. The idea of absolute truth is being denied in pulpits all over this land. I didn't say all pulpits, but in pulpits all over the, the United States, preachers are denying that the Bible is absolute truth. You have a growing number of preachers who do not even believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. They do not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Now, one of the belief systems that we have here is that we believe that God delivered us a word-perfect Bible. A word-perfect Bible. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt preserve them, O God. I'm in Romans 12, 6 and 7. Correction, I'm in Psalms 12, 6 and 7. Thou shalt preserve them, O God, from this generation and forever. If you look closely at, at, at Psalm 12, 6 and 7, God is not only promising you the validity of His Word, but He's promising you that He will preserve it forever. I talked to a man this week who said, 
Well, I believe in parts of the Bible, but I can't accept parts of the Bible that have been messed up. Now, that's foolishness. Either God's Word is true, and if it is not true, it makes God a liar. God said He will preserve His Word. Every word of God is pure. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word, not just some of the words. We've got to preserve our, the integrity of the Bible as part of who we are. Our children need to know that God's Word is the ultimate truth. That this is where reality is. Reality is defined by who God is and who His Word is. Let's go to verse number 29. We are in Romans chapter 1, verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Now, now this, this is a description of the culture of ancient Rome. See how well it describes the culture of Vernon County, Missouri. And Vernon County is not nearly as wicked as a lot of counties. In fact, Vernon County would look really good along some counties in California and in along, upside some counties in uh, New York and other places east and west. Notice what we read here in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. Let's read this out loud together. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, oh, we're going to read some important words, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So now St. Paul has laid out the problem to the church at Rome. This is the culture that you live in. So now what is St. Paul going to do? Book of Romans has 16 chapters. And every chapter is a loaded chapter. So we're just going to go from mountaintop to mountaintop in Romans. Real quickly, we're just moving along and we're looking at the tops of the mountains. We won't go down into the valleys because to do that, uh, I know a preacher who preached 50 some sermons out of the book of Romans. And we're trying to do it here and we're trying to finish it today. We got we to gotta, we gotta move around. We got to move on. St. Paul says this is what we've got to do about it. So let's go to Romans 3 and he'll tell us exact. He'll show the Roman, the, the people there in Rome, exactly what they needed to know. St. Paul said, look, if you want to prepare a God-fearing body of people called a church, we got to deal with the sin problem. Now, these words that I will read here are applicable to you and I. And folks, listen, I'm compelled to examine my life just like you ought to examine yours. Because we need to have right hearts with our God. We need to make sure that we're living in the will of God. 
Romans 3, verse 9. And I, I'd like for you to read with me, if you would, please. And I'll tell you when to stop. So, so St. Paul is now going to talk to these people. And he's going to teach them what they must do to form a godly church. And be immunized from the judgment that's coming upon the Roman Empire. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 together. What then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise, for we have before proved, both Judeans and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. He's talking about both houses of Israel. Talking about the house of Judah. Talking about all the Israelites of the dispersion that are now Greek-speaking. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. Now that's a, that's a good hard attitude for us to have. There's none righteous, no, not one. And if that be the case, then everyone, no exception, everyone needs the blood of Christ. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Sin is a terrible thing, church. It's defined as the transgression against God's law. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. And I must remind everyone here that St. Paul uses very vivid language. He spares nothing. And the words we're now going to read are pretty strong words. So let's try it. I dare you. Read with me. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they know not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does this describe America today? Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Drop down to verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So now, Paul is, <clears throat> if, if you understand what's happening here, Paul is indicting the entire Roman culture. He's indicting them as having a serious problem with sin. And that is why I'm urging this congregation to live godly, sanctified lives, holy unto God. The Bible says in Revelation 18, verse 4, come out of my... Come out of her, my people. She be not partaker of her plagues, that you not be partaker of her sins and receive not of her plagues. Now, St. Paul has identified the sin problem. Now he's going to tell them what sin will mean to them if they don't come to repentance. So let's go to Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23, the Bible says... The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think of sin as having wages. People who walk in sin, unconfessed, unconfessed sin, will receive wages for their sin. What will the wages be? What will their paycheck be if they never come to repentance? 
and adjudicate that, those sins in the blood of Christ. Well, what's going to happen is Roman, Romans, the book of Romans, in, in, in Paul's effort here, he's, he's going to try to show them that they are all under a sentence of death and judgment. Because the wages of sin is death. So Romans 5, verse 8 tells, St. Paul tells them something in Romans 5, 8 that is remarkable and is true for every one of us sitting here today. Romans 5, verse 8. What does the Bible say in Romans 5, verse 8? But God commanded His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, just think about it. Before you ever had a thought of trying to serve God, before you ever had a, an inkling that you'd like to be a Christian, God loved you. When did God love you? When He chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world before you ever were born into this world. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 4. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine God's love that was devoted to you before you were ever conceived in your mother's womb? God loved you before the foundation of the world. What kind of love is that? What kind of love would God have to save anybody? God is not under obligation to save anybody. And why He would save anyone is a mystery no one has ever answered. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8 tells us that God's love toward us was directed there before we were ever born into the world. So important. So very important. So now we're ready to look at the gift of God that comes through eternal life in Jesus Christ. The same verse that tells us that the wages of sin is death also tells us, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 The Bible tells us that for by grace are you saved, by faith it is the gift of God. That's Ephesians 2, verse 8. So God's gift to us is eternal life. I want you to think about the gift of eternal life for just a moment. The gift of eternal life is not something you could earn. You could never be good enough to earn eternal life. Because the, the perfection of Jesus Christ alone appeased God's wrath upon sin. There's nothing you and I could do to appease the wrath of God against sin. And that's how much God hates sin. He sent His only begotten Son into the world to be the sin, to be the substitutionary sacrifice in the punishment of sin. So now the question is, how are we made acceptable? We know that the gift of salvation is not something that we earn it's not something that we receive for good behavior or as a reward. 
The gift of salvation is not something that God will give you at a future time. If you believe the Bible, when you become a believer, you repent of your sins, you are baptized as the sign and seal of that confession of faith, you have eternal life. It is a present possession. A reward is something you will receive out here in the future. The gift is a present possession. Your reward for what you do in good works is a future attainment. You won't receive it in this world. You will receive it in the world that is to come. So now we're looking at the next question. What makes us acceptable? How are we made acceptable to receive Jesus Christ? Turn in your Bibles to Romans 5, verse 9. Romans 5, 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were sent were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So, the answer to the question, how are we made acceptable to God? By the blood of Jesus Christ, period. Nothing we could ever do, no good works will ever attain the gift of salvation. Only the blood of the Lamb. So the next question that could be asked, what is the means by which our salvation is all going to come to pass? Turn to Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, verse 28, 29, and 30 is called the golden chain of salvation. These three verses have a name, the golden chain of salvation. Now, if you were going to memorize some verses, these would be good, wonderful memory verses. Let's read them together. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Notice in these verses that God is the active part, party. God is doing it all. We are the recipients and God is the giver. The, the rallying cry of the Reformation was, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, by sola scriptura alone, to the glory of God alone. When you and I stand before the throne of God, we will only be able to say, Praise His holy name. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and blessing and glory. He will receive all the glory for what He has and will do. Now notice here, 
Test your thinking, people. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. How many of you know that everything that happens to you in your life will ultimately have a good ending? Now, that's hard, to, that's hard to reconcile. Hard to reconcile. But let's think about something. The day they put Jesus upon the cross at Calvary, His disciples thought their world had ended. When they put Him in the tomb, they were a dejected group of people. That became known as Black Friday. They called it Black Friday. What do we call that day now? It's called Good Friday. They commercialize that day now. It's called Good Friday. The most despicable crime in all of human history putting to death the most righteous, innocent man that ever walked the earth, and they used the most inhumane means of killing him that was known to man. That act is now how we got our salvation, through his blood. That blood shed at Calvary bought your soul. Someone had to endure the punishment because the Ten Commandments indict us. They accuse, they indict. There's a preacher named Ray Comfort. I don't know how many of you know him. But Ray Comfort is an unusual preacher. He will stand on a street corner and he will stop someone and he'll say, can I have a conversation with you? And they'll say, well, of course. He'll say, are you a Christian? Yeah. Occasionally. They'll say, yes, I'm a believer. Are you saved? Yeah. He says, then can I ask you a few questions? He said, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? Typically, they might say, well, I think they've been abolished now. But if he finds someone that says the Ten Commandments are still relevant, then he will say, have you ever, um, have you ever violated the first one? They'll think a minute, well, I don't think so. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Very first commandment. The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you ever made a vow or swore a, an oath that you broke? The fourth commandment is, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, keep in mind, church, that most every one of these commandments carried the death penalty in ancient Israel. They were capital crimes against God. Thou shalt not steal. So how many times do you have to steal to be a, a thief? What, what qualifies you as a thief? You steal one time, you're a thief. Thou shalt not bear false witness. How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Come on, help me. One time and you're a liar. Steal one time and you're a thief. Bear false witness one time is all it takes to be guilty of that one. Thou shalt not covet anyone else's wife 
or all of his wealth, his belongings. How many times you have to lust after a woman to be an adulterer? How many? Come on, help me. One time and you're an adulterer. So Mr. Ray Comfort will, and they'll acknowledge that. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. He'll get to the bottom of the last commandment and they've almost violated every one of them. And they'll say, by your, by your own testimony, you've just now told me that you are a, an idolater, a blasphemer, you're a Sabbath breaker, you're a thief and a liar. Have you ever repented of those sins? No. How can you be a Christian if you have not repented of your sin? And they'll look and say, I don't, I don't know. See, what is preached in America today, church, is not the old time gospel of confessing your sin and living in a state of God-fearing repentance. Excuse me for stressing that a little bit more than I may intended to. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's hard to reconcile. How did that work for Joseph of old? Joseph was sold by his own brothers who wanted to murder him. Reuben, the eldest, would not stand for that. So they cast him into a pit. Joseph was sold into slavery. How's that for good luck? While in slavery to Potiphria, his wife falsely accused him of rape. He was falsely accused, falsely condemned, jailed in an Egyptian dungeon for a crime he did not commit. How's that for good luck? All things will work together for good to them that love God. Joseph sitting in a dungeon in the mire, dank, damp darkness of an Egyptian dungeon for how many years? Two full years. But will all things work together for good? How in the world are they going to work together for good for Joseph? Nobody knows him in that dungeon. Well, there's a butler and a baker that are there too. There's a butler and a baker. And they both have a dream. And you know that story. Joseph interprets their dreams. And they come to pass. One loses his head, one keeps his head. The one that keeps his head later, when the Pharaoh has a dream, and he wanted all the magicians of Egypt to explain it to him, they couldn't. But his faithful butler, I think it was, said, I know somebody that can tell you that dream. Where's he at? He's sitting in a deep dungeon. Dungeon? And you think somebody in a dungeon's going to tell me my, the meaning of my dream, yeah? Run and tell them to bring him. Now, the first thing they had to do before they could bring Joseph is send him to Jonathan Wickey's barber shop. Because they had to find a sharp razor to shave off his Israelite beard. Because the Egyptians did not tolerate a beard. And the Hebrews loved a beard. A nicely trimmed beard. <laughs> That's my addition to the story. 
a nicely trimmed beard, not one down here that catches all the food. <laughs> Stores up all the, the, the leftovers. No, a neatly trimmed beard, like I see some in here. And you know the rest of that story. Joseph went from the pit to slavery, to a dungeon, to a palace in a period of 13 years. Did he ever know what his outcome was going to be? No. But Joseph later, when his brothers thought he might kill them all, he told his brothers what you meant for evil. God meant for good. Church, when you leave here today, whatever your burden is, St. Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. All things. Not just the things that you want to select. What a beautiful verse of Scripture. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow. There's that word foreknow, foreknowledge. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He did predestinate. Predestination. It's a biblical concept. It belongs to the Reformation. The evangelical Christians of Arminian thinking do, do not know what to do with the word predestinate. They'd like to remove it from the Bible if they could. Predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, whom he chose from the foundation of the world and predestinated for a certain salvation, them he also what? Called. We do not choose God, He chooses us. Whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. God is the active part in everything we're talking about. And yet you have millions and millions and millions of Christians today who believe that they choose God, they, when they end up, they're the author of their salvation. It's become the most popular pathway preached in America today. But what does the Bible say? You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you, John 15, verse 16. So now, beloved, we are, God foreknows us before the foundation of the world, he predestinates us, and predestination is bringing to pass election. Election is the choice God made of those that He's going to save. It is the one, the choice that God makes. And whom He does predestinate, He will call. Those he calls, he quickens by the power of the Holy Spirit and brings them to spiritual life and seals them with the power of the Holy Spirit. So we'll bring this lesson to closure with this thought. We have just witnessed an election that I think describes 
the moral and spiritual degeneration of the American people. I would caution all of us to not let our emotional state get wound up like a clock. America may have received exactly what it deserves. Now, I don't know what kind of leadership we're going to see, but here's what I do know, folks. I know this, that right now, they're counting votes in Nevada and Arizona that are going to determine, together with the Herschel Walker election coming up in a few days, will determine who, hold, who holds the House and who holds the Senate. It will be nothing short of a miracle if the Republicans hold the House or the Senate. If they hold neither of those houses, God help us for the next two years, because we're going to need His mercy and grace. Let's be standing. Amen.